tonight I want to talk about identity and truth. And as I go into this section of talks, or whatever you want to call it, called life management, it's pretty much new territory for me because I tend to look at scripture and stories within scripture, like I was doing in Genesis and Exodus, and build the story from there, and you know, and from there we might delve into whatever topic it might be, relationships or relationship to authority or psychology or human behavior, things like that. This, this series is much more topical. And so it's a lot harder for me to begin with a subject and talk about that as opposed to going to the scriptures and, and going from there. So bear with me as I study my way through some of this stuff. I'm probably going to make mistakes and say things that aren't quite accurate and you're gonna be like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, and I'm okay with that. Because I'm, what I want to do is figure out what the truth is. And one of the ways we can do that is to talk about it and kind of process it out as, as we go along. So that's, uh, I just wanted to start with that to give you, hopefully shape a realistic expectation of what you're going to get in this set of classes. I don't, I feel like this is, a lot of this is coming from stuff that I've learned or that I've experienced or that I've heard, but I don't really have a good handle on how to present it, if that makes sense. So um, be that as it may, you can kick the, uh, the back open a little bit more if you need to. I know, imagine coming at 7.30 and like, the people here. All right, so talking tonight about identity and truth, or and more specifically than that, maybe uh, creating order from chaos. I'm gonna show you three pictures. So the first is this lovely little flower Second, the origami, yeah. Second is the skull retriever puppy, and the third is my daughter. So, thinking caps, you might actually have to talk tonight. What do all three of those things have in common? A flower, a dog, and a human being. What, what do they share in common? Life. Life. Okay. They're alive and they'll die. Okay, they were alive and they'll die. Creator. Creators. They are creators. Is that what you're saying? It's a creator. A creator. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> what about responding to environment? Do they? Mm-hmm. A flower will grow toward the light, right? Or a flower can be, uh, or any plant for that matter, can be affected by presence of toxins in the air, or food, or water, things like that. Okay, so going back to the flower. Yeah. Going back to the flower. Body, soul, and spirit. What does the flower have? Body. A body. Soul and spirit? No, probably not. Does the flower feel pain? Not that I know of. I haven't asked, although I do still love to pop the heads off of dandelions. Um, so we know that a flower, a flower responds to its environment. It's not like a brick where it just sits there and does nothing. You can, you can affect the environment around the flower and that has an effect on, that kind of influences what the flower does, let's say, but we don't know that it's actually the flower making a choice. We don't, the flower doesn't tell us now that it's not happy with us for doing what we're doing. Um, okay, the dog, body, soul, and spirit. Which of those three? Does it have a body? No. Does it have a soul? No. What about a spirit? 
Depends on your definition of the word, but yeah, you can say it does. A dog can um, respond to emotional cues, know when you're happy and sad, maybe. Um, a dog's behavior, not its body, but its behavior can be shaped by its environment. True? Mm -hmm. So from the moment that dog is born, it's being shaped by what's going on around it, and that can um, determine whether or not the dog is cuddly and playful or biting and vicious. And when you come along and meet the dog two years later, how the dog treats you may have nothing to do with you and everything to do with what has happened to the dog up to that point. And, and that's, in, that's in positive and negative ways. Um, and there's a guy by the name of, uh, I think it's even Pavlov, uh, you've heard of Pavlov's dog experiment. So what he wanted to know was every time he fed his dog, the dog would salivate. And so he was curious, does the dog salivate because it's eating? Or does the dog salivate because it thinks it's going to eat? So can he separate these, the dog salivating from the food? So every time he would give the dog food, he would ring a bell. And after a while, he would ring the bell and the dog would start salivating because it associated all of the cues together, and so whenever the bell rang, the dog would think it was getting food, and it wasn't. Um, so you can shape what the dog does, okay? Body, spirit, and now we get to soul. So tell me what's different about Carrie than the German Shepherd, or than the uh, Golden Retriever puppy. She has spirit. Spirit, okay, so we said the dog has a spirit too. Do you mean a soul? A soul. Okay. Well, what else? Does it matter how I treat her as opposed to how I treat my flowers? Mm -hmm. What about my dog? Mm -hmm. Why? What's different? Doesn't Doesn't okay. Yes, that's one thing. Yeah. A mean dog can be put down. We don't really do that with mean children. Image. Okay. Okay. So is what I said about the dog also true for the child? In other words, we meet the child 15, 20, 30, 40, or even just five years down the road, and how the child treats you and responds to how you treat it may have nothing to do with you. Right? For sure not initially, because the child is shaped by its environment. <clears throat> so every child is born with needs that must be met for life. Just like a dog, just like a flower. When it germinates, when that seed germinates, there are conditions that must be met for life. And if you take those conditions away, well, the flower dies. The dog might not. The human being might not but it changes how the dog or the human being responds to life. Obviously the biggest difference between a child and a dog is eternity, that image bearing. And those things matter and those things are important. Another thing about a child that potentially is different from the way a dog responds is that a child responds to how it perceives reality and is shaped by those responses for the rest of its life. We're gonna dig into some of that more, but what I mean by that is this. So Carl Jung, I believe it was Jung, 
or Roger, one of the one of the psychoanalysts of the last hundred years, said that there was essentially two forms of reality. There's what is, and that's fact, and there's what's perceived, which is subjective. What do you? How, who, who do you talk to if you want to know American history? Well, you read your history book, written by who, in what perspective? That makes a difference on the history that you learn, because if you ask the French what happened at the Battle of Pittsburgh, and you ask the English what happened at the Battle of Pittsburgh, you're going to get two different results. You're going to get two different answers. Not because two different things happened, but because you're getting one set of facts from people who perceived them one way, and another set of facts from people who perceived them differently. The same thing happens, did you ever have this happen in your life where you have a friend or a sibling or a parent that's upset with you, and they say, well, you said this and this and this, and you said, but that's not what I meant. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, it does matter what you meant, but it also matters how you came across. So you have intended reality and you have perceived reality. So you have, you have a child. I could treat all of my four children exactly the same. And they could grow up telling you four different things about how they were raised. Because what works for one may not work for the other. So people are complex and are shaped by how they see the world not just what the world does to them. So anyway, last class period, I introduced the idea of chaos and order. And I wanna, I wanna find my remote, that's what I'd like to do right now. I wanna explore those two things a little bit there to give you some, some definitions of what I'm talking about when I say chaos and order. So starting with order, when you think about your life and where you are, uh, when you're feeling well, and I don't mean everything go is going well. I mean when your soul, your mind are at rest. You have your life has purpose, your life has meaning, your relationships are pretty stable, you feel connected, your needs are met, there's appropriate structure around you so that not everything is just chaos and you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, but you have an idea of what to expect. There isn't so much unexpected in chaos in your life that things are unmanageable. Do you need some chaos? Yeah, you do, actually. Imagine if every minute of every day you knew what to expect, you knew what was going to happen, and everything was set in order just exactly the way it was supposed to be. Would you be happy? For like 10 minutes, maybe. But you need a little chaos in your life, too. You need the unexpected. Okay, but this is what I'm talking about order. That's what I'm talking about. What about chaos? Guilt-ridden and anxious. So you might look at someone and say, wow, they have their life put together. And it might look like it. But on the inside, that's not even close to being the case. Guilt-ridden and anxious. Not at peace with the past, maybe the present, maybe the future, any of those three things. Um, there's too much unknown to make sense of life. Because you have people, have you ever seen people operating crisis mode? <coughs> It's horrible, and I'm not exaggerating. It's when stuff has built up to the point that you can't even plan ahead anymore or think about the past. All you have is what's screaming at you the loudest in front of you right now, and it's the only thing that you have the ability to focus on. And you go from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. I know people like this. It's not a happy place to be. <clears throat> There's too much unknown to make sense of life. Uh, when you're in chaos, your life is 
managed, not you managing it, your life is managed by bad habits and harmful addictions, and you cannot explain or stop bad behavior and impulses. You feel stuck, confused, helpless, um, not living up to the expectations of yourself and others. Now, and if you want to, if you want to think about something, um, just think about how much worse your life could be than it is exactly right now. That's what it means to fall into chaos when things are like that. Um, I had an experience like that yesterday, for example. Oh, well, before I get to that, um, the other thing I want to say is that these two aren't necessarily big gaps. And here's what I mean by that. We can put on the projection of having our lives in order, and we, maybe we do, more or less, for the most part. But, uh, so you have weaknesses, for example, and uh, what happens with your weaknesses and your bad habits? You don't, you don't stand there one day and you think, well, you know, life's going pretty well, but I got this little bad habit over here that I just, I'd like to indulge in it today, and so I'm just going to, you know, just dabble in it a bit. I don't really need it. I'm feeling fine, but I'm just going to do it. That's not what happens with bad habits, is it? It's like you're walking along, and things are going well, and maybe you're walking down the hall with your friends, and um, a, a water pipe falls out of the ceiling onto your head. And how you respond probably isn't going to be very good. Maybe you'll say something you wish you would regret. Maybe you'll get angry and pick it up and throw it down the hall as hard as you can, and you realize that your three fellow aides were watching what was happening. Now you're in chaos, right? Because whatever it was that you were in before the water pipe fell on your head, something inside of you burst out and revealed itself for a second. And you kind of got laid bare in front of someone else. Now maybe anger isn't your weakness like it is for me. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But we can flip-flop between the two of these very quickly. Um, I don't want to take up too much time with this, but uh, I'll give you an example. So my in-laws are selling their business, and because of dad's dementia and uh, mental health, he is basically not involved at all anymore. And so you have my cousin and her husband that are buying the business. They moved into the area. <clears throat> He's been working there for a number of months, and they've been trying to, well, there hasn't been much communication in the last of months because everybody's trying to keep their head above water and life's really busy and you have people managing a business that don't really know what they're doing. They haven't been trained for that. It's just kind of like this is what has to happen right now because of where everything is at. Well, I got pulled into the uh, pulled into the mess here a couple of weeks ago because there was some miscommunication going on and differing expectations and things like that. And the last couple of weeks for me personally, I've been really lousy because I feel stuck. You have one side, you have the other side, and you've got me here in the middle trying to manage everything. That sound like fun? So some people might enjoy that sort of thing. I'm not one of those people. And so last night I ran over to um, my cousin's place for a meeting and I was, I think it's fair to say that I was more stressed and anxious about that meeting than I was the night I got ordained. Like that was that was my level of anxiety last evening. Why? Because the meeting went perfectly fine. When I left, we were on the same page. All that needed to happen was for us to sit and talk it out and come to an understanding. But it was the unknown 
that was causing, that was putting me into this state of anxiety, so to speak. That's chaos. Now, when you saw me yesterday, you thought, oh, there's Nate. He looks pretty put together. His eyes are red and he looks like he's been drinking. But other than that, <laughs> But I say that to say that we move back and forth fairly frequently between these things. And sometimes we might find ourselves in longer periods of order, and other times we might find ourselves in longer periods of chaos. But this is not like, okay, my life was chaos, and now that I'm 34, it's, it's going great, and it's going to go like that the rest of my life. Well, no, it doesn't act, it doesn't operate like that. So back to uh, this very nice picture of Carrie. I want to read for you Psalm 139. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Now, think about who's in the room with you tonight. All the people around you, every one of you was one time a slightly less cute version <laughs> of this baby, right? All of you were that. Somebody said one time that they just, when they see people, they just see like babies that grew up, which is an interesting way of looking at people. But what I read to you tonight from Psalm 139 is true about you, and it's been true, as far as I know, about every human being that has ever been born. Every one of you was a baby that needed to be loved, fed, cuddled, smiled at, and accepted by the people around you. And some of you might still need some of that, except the cuddle thing. Well, maybe that too. <laughs> Go somewhere else for that, maybe. So the question, what changed between then and now that has made you into who you are today? Because if this is where we all started, some way, shape, or form, and you have, well, you have what you see in yourself today, what has changed? Good or bad? Experiences. You're shaped by a lot of things, aren't you? You're shaped by what's happened to you. You're shaped by what you've done to yourself. <coughs> You've been shaped by your choices. You've been shaped by the choices of other people. So, next question then, talking about identity. Do you know who you are? And the next question is that, do you understand why that you do the things that you do? Proverbs 14.8, been a verse that has stuck with me for the last about 12 years now. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. How would you like to understand your way? And when I, when I, and I think if I'm interpreting this verse correctly, it means that a wise person, a prudent person, understands themselves, their way, why they walk the way they do, why they act the way they do, why... I'm not sure what all is wrapped up in that, but that's, that's the direction I'm understanding this verse to be taking us. 
How would you like to understand your way? Because I'm not a neurologist, but unprocessed parts of our stories aren't left in the past. It's not like things happen and we just, you know, shut that drawer and walk away and and it's in the past. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Because we carry unprocessed parts of our stories with us. Our minds were created to be redeemed and healed, not stuck. And that's encouraging. Like our minds actually, neurologically, physically can regenerate. That's how God created us. I have friends, nobody that I'm talking about in this room, nobody in this room that I'm talking about. I have friends with gaps in their memories around times of trauma that last that might last for months or even years. Where they will tell you that, or they've told me that, yeah, there's this period in my life, that time, I remember virtually nothing from those two or three years. Like it's just, it's gone. Well, I can tell you it's not actually gone. You might not be able to access it right now, but it's not gone. We see counselors. Nobody, Nobody ever came and sat in my office and talked to me because they had answers and they wanted to let me know what they were. Right? There's an entire there's an entire industry in counseling and psychology where people will pay someone, pay someone, literally, like anywhere from like 50 to $200 an hour so that they can sit down in their office and have that person tell them who they are and why, why the things in their life are happening the way they are. It's because we want to understand. And we don't. We don't automatically understand ourselves. How badly do you want to know the truth? <clears throat> talking tonight about identity and truth. How badly would you like to know the truth? I say, yeah, I'll take the truth. Really? Truth can hurt. And the reason people live in broken lives and walk away from relationships that they, that that have gotten hard and things like that, not, not across the board, but often it's because the truth is too painful. And it's actually easier just to walk away and keep living life the way I've been living it than it is to try to face those things. Identity. We are complex. What we believe, and I would say maybe add to that, what we believe about ourselves drives everything else we do in our lives. A.W. Tozer famously wrote this, and what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Identity affects everything that we do. What is identity? Reputation is earned. Identity is received. Okay? We receive identity. I'm going to be talking about that here in just a second. But uh, identity is received. Who are you and who told you that? So Freud came up with this, uh, the iceberg model. I know I've talked about this in class before, but who knows, it might have been a while. And he said, this is not a skull or a man with a hat. Even though it looks like both. So Freud basically said, we we operate on three dimensions. We have the conscious, which is up here. And conscious, by the way, is the Greek word that means with knowledge. Con, with 
science or knowledge is uh, is the last part of that word. So conscience means to be with knowledge. So Freud says we we have our conscience. These are behaviors that are seen. This is what you do on the outside that everybody else can look around you. Everybody else around you sees. Then Freud says underneath that, down here below the surface, we have the subconscious. These are uh, things that are associated with your limbic system: thoughts, feelings, emotions, stuff that you can reach. Okay, so I can't see what you're thinking right now, but you know. I don't know what you're feeling right now, but you have all of those things. Nobody else has access to them at the moment. So we have the subconscious, and then down here all the way at the bottom, what am I doing wrong? As you can see, I hate this spelling words. And all the way at the bottom, we have the unconscious. So if you think about, think of it from Freud's perspective here for a moment, you have what's seen, you have what's felt that is driving what is seen, correct? I saw you go to the kitchen and make yourself a milkshake. I'm going to assume that you did that because you were hungry. I can't see that you're hungry. I can't feel that you're hungry. You didn't tell me, but I'm observing your behavior and I'm assuming something about what's going on in your subconscious. Underneath that, we have what is unconscious. This is what is out of reach. It's our base level, it's our core, however you want to describe that. And Freud says that, said, or believed, observed, depending on how you want to look at it, that what we, do, what we see on the outside side is shaped by what we think and believe, and that is shaped by an awful lot of things down here that we don't understand. And just a classic example of that, when you go to a good psychologist, they're trying to figure out what's going on in your subconscious. Like they're trying to make sense of that because there's things up that are happening up here that aren't good. If you go to a hypnotist, they will drop you right down into the unconscious level and experiment with things that we aren't all that comfortable with. But that's, that's, these are the things that are going on. So when you say, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, we might be able to find the reason for that in here. We probably don't know it. But there's also things that are beneath that, are buried beneath that yet that we don't know, that we don't understand. Another way of looking at it is this. This is from Simon Sinek, who is a, uh, a business coach. He, he has what, he's, what he calls the, girl, the golden circle. He says, out here, we have what you do. Here we have how you do it. In the middle, we have why you do it. So everybody sees the what, and he, and he uses Apple as a, uh, as a great example of this. He says, most companies, when they're doing advertising, Most companies, when they're doing advertising, will tell you what they do. Dell, for example. Dell will say, we make great computers. How do we do that? Well, they're innovative. They're nice to look at. They uh, are user-friendly. They're cheap. They're reliable. Want to buy one? Why not? I've just offered you a product that I'm telling you is going to treat you well. Apple says this, we believe in pushing the edges of boundaries. We believe in excellence. We believe in doing everything because of who we are. It's a reflection of who we are. We just so happen to make computers that are sleek, innovative, work well, and are user-friendly. You want to buy one? 
And then Apple started making iPods. And then they started making phones. Why would a computer company make phones? If Dell made a phone, would you buy one? Why not? But Apple does it. You know why people buy Apple? This is from, a, I think, a fairly unbiased standpoint. They're good computers. They're not that much better than everybody else's, but they're good. People buy Apple because they believe the same things that Apple believes. Same as Harley-Davidson. You know people put Harley-Davidson tattoos on their arms? They imprint in ink a corporate company logo. Why? Because they did that to tell you something about what they believe. They say, I believe the same thing you do, therefore I'm willing to buy into what you're selling me. Uh, another way of looking at this is to, is to maybe flatten it out a little bit on the golden circle. We have what we do, we have how we do it, but do many of us really know why we do it? Here, I'll give you another example. Um, so you have worked a dishwasher shift today, and you're scrubbing a plate, and I came along and said, who was dishwasher today? Me. Melody. Came along and said, Melody, why are you washing that? What are you doing? She went, I'm washing the dishes. Why? What do you mean, why? Well, it's time to wash the dishes. It's after lunch. Okay, so what does that matter? Well, I'm on the schedule to wash dishes. So Linford's going to go recruiting next week, and then he's going to say, come to Mountain View. I will put you on the schedule and wash dishes. You in? <laughs> and all of you laugh, and you would rightly say, that's not why I came to Mountain View. So you've got to go deeper than that, don't you? I can see what you're doing. You can tell me how you're doing, and I'm using the hot water and the green scratcher and all of those things. Or you can say, my presence here is enabling an 85-year-old to eat in peace and comfort and off of a clean plate because God created that person. They are sacred. They have a right to be cared for in a godly, God-honoring way. And that's why I'm washing this dish. You see the difference? But we don't think about that. We tend to look at things from the outside in. We see what, we see how, we don't generally look at the why. But you see successful people that start with the why and they begin to work their way out. Identity, another really interesting thing that Simon Sinek says is that what you do proves what you believe. Really interesting, think about that. Where does our identity and what we believe come from. Identity is received at home. That's not the only place we get identity, but that's where it's originally formed. And I'll go through and explain some of these things for you. This is not a comprehensive list. But, uh, okay, someone that, that is neglected as a child. I mean, I mean, and I mean emotionally. My needs are not important. I'm always okay because I have to be. There's little to no positive identity affirmation Feeling and verbalizing pain, need, or vulnerability is a sign of weakness, and get this, mm -hmm. selfishness. Because it would be selfish for me to say what I think and what I need. I internalize blame and guilt, even if it isn't mine. Now that's from a neglected standpoint, emotionally neglected standpoint. There's no positive identity affirmation. What happens with people that are neglected? 
Well, they can shrivel up and die emotionally, or they become performance-driven and are either overachieving or they're so tortured and depressed because they're not living up to their own expectations, the expectations that other people have put on them, that they just give up. That they're the guilt-ridden, tortured failures, or at least that's how they see themselves. That's what happens when our identity is neglected. And this is shaped, by the way, basically from the moment you were born. So if a child cries, and um, <clears throat> so, so from about birth to six months, the child is always right. The child's needs come first. I'm not spanking my child when they're two weeks old. Some people might, but I don't. Um, the child's needs come first. If they lay there on the floor and cry and are hungry, and I ignore them for three hours, what are they going to think about their needs? Now the child isn't thinking, it's just responding to what's going on around it, right? But subconsciously what I'm telling the child is, whatever I'm doing right now is more important than whatever your need is, and you need to learn to cope with your needs. And what the child might do is they eventually might start sucking their thumb. And, and some of that's okay, by the way, don't get me wrong. They need to learn to, to function on their own. I, I get all of that. I'm talking about needs that need to be met, that are being neglected. So the child might start sucking their thumb eventually and cry themselves to sleep. Well, they didn't actually have their need met. They found another way to cope with their thumb. They found another way to cope to try to compensate for that need and cry themselves to sleep. Well, you create a pattern of that over a long enough time period, the child grows up feeling like it's not okay to verbalize needs. But that's actually not the case, is it? Because healthy people know how to talk about what they need. What about a healthy relationship or a healthy identity at the home? My needs are important, get this, within the context of the family. So what parents do on a regular basis is they have three or four children all screaming at them at the same time, and they have to, in about two seconds, make a snap judgment about priority of needs. You gotta do a little in-home triage about what's important right now. And so you might say, um, okay, yes, I know your brother just took away that toy from you, but this child over here is hanging from the ceiling by a rope from their neck, and I should probably take care of that before we talk about your toy. So what you're doing is you're not, you're not neglecting. You're healthily prioritizing. And you're teaching a child that your needs are important, but right now they may not be the most important thing in the room. And so the child learns to speak and say what it needs within the context of, what, of everything else that is going on around them. That's healthy identity. Get this, I belong and have value because of who I am not what I do. And that is something who I am cannot be taken away from me. I want to illustrate for you uh, what that might look like. So I heard a rabbi say one time that uh, he was telling the story of another old Jewish man who had since passed away. So this is probably like in the last hundred years, something like that, quite a long time ago. And he said this, 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 this old man was saying that when he was growing up, he didn't know what his mom's name was. Because when his dad referred to his wife, he always called her my wife. That's how he referred to her. 
and it, he wasn't doing it as a as a as a as a sign of distance. He was doing it to establish identity. He never yelled at his wife if she was in the next room. That his his father would go to that room and talk to her. Why? Because he felt that she was who she was deserved enough of respect that I don't shout at her from across the house. Now, that all plays out in varying degrees. But I was like, you know what? That's interesting. He was saying, as a positive thing, that this father would refer to his wife by her identity, not by what she did, not by how she performed, but the relationship was important because of who she was. So I went home and I tried this with Kai. Kai was three at the time, something like that. And um, I was, uh, he was sitting on my lap after supper and Kai's always been a very energetic child. Sitting on your lap quietly is just not that high on his priority list. But I, I was talking to him after supper and I just, I just said something to the effect of my son. I just referred to him as my son. And he actually snuggled in. Why? Because that's not identity that can be taken away from him. And I tell my children that. It doesn't matter what you do, that's not something that you get to take away from our relationship. Well, what I'm doing is I'm establishing identity because of who they are, not what they do. You know there's something really safe about that? When you have the freedom, when you're gifted the freedom to mess up without endangering your position. That's safe. Healthy home, the identity of the child does not depend on their behaviors. I received healthy attention and learned proper, proper boundaries for behavior and verbalizing my feelings. Talked about that some. And I am raised to be released in a healthy and equipped way to face life. Now that contrasts with the Next part of, of uh, emotional upbringing that I want to talk about, and that is a hyper-doting childhood where the parents are over-attentive over and over-gushy like, over their children. So think about it this way. The world revolves, the child grows up learning that the world, the world revolves around them. Their flaws are never confronted because they're the golden child. Their, flaw, their flaws are never confronted. They're never actually um, punished in a constructive way because they do everything right. What happens? They think, well, the world revolves around me. I can do no wrong. The problem is that I'm not allowed to grow up and leave. That's what happens. And you actually, this is something else that Freud noticed, and he called it the Oedipal Complex, where a, um, now he linked it to sexuality, which I think was probably inaccurate, but he, he noticed that there were homes where, particularly from the mother to a son, the mother was not well connected to the community and she was not well connected to her husband. So she has these lateral emotional needs that are not being met. And so what she does is she pours her affection into the child and basically, subconsciously, tells the child, you don't have to grow up, you don't have to do anything, I'll take care of you, I'll meet all your needs, life will be easy, but you have to stay. I can't let you grow up because if you grow up, you're going to leave and then I'm going to be left. I have seen that play out with my own two eyes. And it's incredibly destructive to a child. 
essentially what happens is in, in homes where you have um, over an overabundance of unhealthy affection and in homes where you have neglect, the children basically turn out the same. Or they have the ability to turn out the same. And I listened to a really interesting talk by Joy Kreider at um, the Abuse Awareness Symposium on uh, childhood brain development. And she talked about some of these things, um, about how there's different stages of how we are raised that affect how we relate as adults later. So basic human behavior. This is from Frank Reed. People assume the way they were treated as children, A, is the way they deserve to be treated as adults, B, is the way they will tend to treat other people. I have seen this time and time again in working in relationships, especially relationships that are broken, where, where there's conflict between two people, almost without fail. I can go to the one person and they will tell me exactly what the other person is doing to them and how they're making them feel. And I'll go to the other person and they will say exactly how that person is doing to them and making them feel. And it's exactly the same story. We tend to make other people feel either the way we were raised, how our parents made us feel, or how we're feeling ourselves. That's our tendencies. Frank says that we tend to gravitate what feels like home. We tend to return to places of how, our, of how our childhood was. Who are you and who told you that? I asked those two questions earlier. I, I want to add a third question to that. Who are you, who told you, and why should you believe them? Now here I want to talk about creating order from chaos. Have you noticed, if you're like me, that in your life you tend to gravitate to what you feel and not what you know? Is that right? You're feeling anxious about your test or your future or, for me last night, this meeting that was outside of my control. You could have sat down with me all day long and talked about, you know, you know lay out the Bible verses, all of those things. At the end of the day, you know what? I'm still feeling anxious. Why? Because we tend to gravitate towards what we feel and not what we know. That's called chaos. We become what we regularly take in, and that includes the lies that other people tell us, which is why it's really important, especially in a home, that siblings are not allowed to um, berate each other. Because if somebody tells you something long enough, eventually you might start believing them. So we believe the lies that we're told, or we deal with the lies that are told, and the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's called chaos. What can we do about it? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. The earth was without form and void. That Hebrew phrase is called tohu vavohu. The earth was tohu vavohu. What that means, it's like shapeless, empty, nothing. The etymological meaning is chaos just a mess of yarn on the floor that's all tangled up. That's what God had in the beginning. And God said, let there be light. So how does God create order out of chaos? Well, John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light. What is happening? God is speaking the truth to chaos 
And out of that truth comes a place where people can thrive. God could have created the world by rolling up a little bit of earth dough in his hands. And he didn't. He didn't create the sun. The only people that he created with his hands, the only things that he created with his hands, was us. Everything else was spoken word. Why? Because that's how word is created out of chaos. When you introduce truth, you begin to get order. Jesus said that the truth will set you free. Isaiah prophesied that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. I want you to think about this. We don't like vulnerability. I know I've talked about vulnerability a lot over the last two years, but we don't like that. Why not? It's because we don't like light shining in places that we'd rather hide. That's what happened with Adam and even in the Garden of Eden. So how do we manage our relationship with the truth when we don't like light? I want you to think about this. Nothing is so precious and important that it should be kept safe from the truth. Do you agree with that statement? Nothing is so important that it should be kept safe from the truth. Nothing at all? What about if something happens that makes your church look bad? Get to talk about it? Or Mountain View? Or you? Or your family? Or your dad? What happens if you live in deceit? Because Proverbs 14, again, says that the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Contrasted with the folly of fools is deceit. What happens when you live in deceit? What happens when you try to push away the truth? There's an image to maintain to yourself and those around you. I don't dare let anyone inside my walls for fear they'll see who I am and how I'm vulnerable. I can't allow anything bad to happen or to be said about me or revealed about what I'm protecting. And I'm willing to use and manipulate others to get what I want to continue to protect myself. Those are all things that come out of living in deceit. Light is only a threat to those who fear the truth or the breaking down of their systems. I listened to a really interesting story yesterday. Back in the early 90s, there was an American ambassador to England that he was trying to create a network of people that were doing kind of the same sorts of things that he was. And so he, he reaches out to a number of his colleagues, and every year they would get together and have a seminar. And at this seminar, I don't know if it was a week or a weekend or a day, they would get in a high-profile speaker, and the title of his talk was My Biggest Mistake. Really interesting, isn't it? Do you want to give a talk like I had a class night open for when I'm on my DT, for when I'm on the DT in May. Anybody want to, if I volunteer you, take that? Come up here and talk about the stupidest thing you've ever done and what you learned from it. We don't like that much, do we? But they recognize that it's important to hear from people in positions of authority and influence and success. They learned that it was important for those people to tell their stories of when things weren't going well. So we live within structures. I have myself, my story, 
That's, that's one aspect of your structure. You have your family, that's the next closest thing. You have your church and your community, that's the next closest thing. Are you able to tell the truth about those things? Are you willing to let somebody else tell the truth about those things? Because lies that we grow up with are that it is actually not okay to tell the truth about stuff. We have to maintain the image of, well, that our family doesn't have problems, that everything looks good, so we can't talk about it. If there's problems, we don't talk about them. Why? Because there's not problems. The same thing might happen in a church setting or a community setting. The same thing might happen in how I relate to myself and how I see myself. Your story and what has shaped you, can you tell the truth about it? Can you tell the truth about your own decisions and how you see yourself? Something really interesting that I, I heard recently about gifts. The man said that we have our, we have our the things we're good at. So we have our we have our spiritual gifts that God has given us, and then he said we have the things where everyone else thinks we're good at them, but we're really just doing that to cover up our insecurities and vulnerabilities. And they're not actually gifts; they're coping mechanisms. I was like, ouch. Because what happens is we can create an image of order. Right? We can create a, a, a world in which when other people see us, things look like they're going well. The problem is when you're in that position and you're not doing well inside, you're actually not in order. You're still living in chaos because you're unable to be genuine. One, one thing quickly here before I before I wrap this up. Um, there's something that, I haven't, I haven't figured all of this out yet, so, so bear with me. There's something that really bothers me about places like Mountain View or County Bible School and things like that. And, and I'll tell you what that is. People don't generally care what Nate knows. I don't know why, but people, people will just usually tell me um, at least here at Bible school, they'll tell me what they think, they'll tell me what they're doing, that they shouldn't be, and things like that. And from a structural standpoint, yes, I care. I care if you're knowingly breaking the rules and things like that. But that's not actually what bothers me. What bothers me is that you're doing things you know you shouldn't, and it bothers you enough that you're willing to come talk to me about it. You know what bothers me about that? has nothing to do with what Mountain View's rules are, or CBS, or anywhere else. It has nothing to do with the rules. What bothers me is the fact that you're willing to live in a way that you cannot be open about your choices. Does that make sense? You, that, you're, that you're willing to, to take part in things, I'm not speaking of you specifically, I'm talking about this in a general sense, that people are willing to take part in things that they know they shouldn't, and that if the wrong person came along, they would immediately stop and try to cover up and they feel guilty about it, even though they don't feel guilty enough to do anything differently. What bothers me about that is that you're cheating yourself out of the ability to live honestly. That's what bothers me about it. It's not that I think you have to obey the rules, and it has nothing to do with that. It's how you feel about it yourself and the choices that you make of it. That's what bothers me. 
So how do we move from chaos into order? I have just a couple of pointers here for you. How do we utilize the truth to set us free? How do we have a proper identity and a proper relationship with the truth? One, internalize the truth. So last class period I talked about that we become what we take in. So internalize the truth. Psalm 139, 18. How marvelous are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God says that he has a lot of thoughts about you. And if you take the time to look in his word, he actually does. And I talked about understanding ourselves. We may not understand who we are and why we do the way we, things the way we do, but God does. Identity is received, not earned. And if you want to know who you are, go to the one who created you and he will tell you. But if you're always going to listen to the other voices and never take in his, you're going to keep believing them. Internalize the truth. If you struggle with identity, it's probably because you don't understand yourself or God. And believe it or not, he has a few things to say about you. If you're willing to hear that. Secondly, this one is taken from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Tell the truth, or at least don't lie. One of the things that is so necessary in a relationship with the truth and integrity is that you have to decide that living the truth, as much as that may cost you, is preferable to the cost of being fake and continuing to maintain your image. Here's something that's important. Do not speak or go along with what you know be less than the truth. Here's an example of that. This is a really petty example of that. My brother, if you ask him a question that he thinks you have no business knowing the answer to, he will lie to your face. Hey, Kevin, is your wife pregnant? No. Next week we get a birth announcement. He doesn't see that as lying. I, and I gotta admit, I do have some kind of grudging affirmation for somebody that can just lie like that without batting an eyelash because I can't do that. Um, but if you ask me a question and I don't want to tell you the answer, I try really hard to tell you that. Not because I'm lying if I don't necessarily or if I try to redirect, but because I don't think that it's helpful for me to try to manipulate how you're thinking in order for me to maintain where I want to be. So to Exodus 20, do not bear false witness, that doesn't really mean don't lie. It means, in some ways, you could say that it means give an honest impression of what reality is. Now we can't always own everything that people think about what we say, I understand that, but I have decided that I'm not going to manipulate my children and lie to them. What I mean by that is, if I need to leave, I'm not going to try to distract them and quickly walk out the door. I'm going to say, this is where I'm going, this is why. Because I don't want them growing up with the adults in their lives, using the misdirection and distraction to keep them from the truth. I don't want that to be helpful. Telling the truth, or at least not saying things you know to be less than true, as a part of being living in integrity. And finally, Base yourself in what God says about you. I know this, this goes back to internalizing the truth, but somewhere along the line, we have to come to grips with the fact that his truth 
and what he says about us is more important than what others say about me. Identity is received, not earned. How do we interact with God? We start by trying to earn our way in, don't we? So often, that's where we come from. On the outside, trying to work my way in, and I can't be in because of this, 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 this. And if you look at what God says, he says, you're already in. And if you would understand that, maybe some of the other problems would go away. You look at David in Psalm 51. I'm going to close with this, I promise. You look at David in Psalm 51, and he's mourning the loss of his connection with God, and he's yearning to have that back again. So this is something that he wrote right after his sin with Bathsheba. The question is, did he lose his connection with God because he sinned? Or did he sin because he had lost his connection with God? You see the difference in those starting points? And so often we try to work from the outside in towards God and don't realize that Christ has already paid the price for us to go from the outside to the inside. And he's factored in all of your sins, past, present, and future, into that equation. We get to start from within with identity that he has given us, and then we get to work outward from that. That's all I have for tonight.